we're good. The most powerful man in the Okay, Western hi, I'm Tom Donlin. I'm the editorial page editor of Barron's Weekly, and I'm, uh, I've been uh, called upon to moderate a, uh, a, a, uh, a panel that, is, that asks whether there is a place for the free market in, um, in a, a health care reform system. And I, I note with interest that if Cato is still asking whether there's a role for the uh, for the free market in healthcare, there may not be a role for the, <laughs> the free market in healthcare. The U.S. healthcare system resists reform, not least because reform is usually defined as saving money over here, spent on some of us, so that we can spend it over there on somebody else. The last really big changes to the healthcare system, you know, occurred in 1965. There's a good reason for that. There was, a, there was a, an activist president and a Congress elected in a Democratic landslide. But the powerful lawmakers of that day lost their big majorities quickly, even more quickly than their cost estimates lost their optimism. The American people learned by experience that big government programs mean big new taxes, and that's another reason why the U.S. health care system resists reform. I think there's a lot of, um, of empty optimism right now in, uh, in Washington. I, I, uh, I will personally be surprised after having watched this, uh, this issue for longer than I want to count. Uh, I'd personally be surprised if anything very meaningful comes from it. We are now the heirs of the reform program of 1965, and as such, we are trying to pay the inheritance tax. The party in government is trying to put it on the nation's credit card. The other party believes in paying as few taxes as possible. Most of the, and as few bills as possible. Most of the lawmakers in both parties want a health care system that is cheaper and better and more universal. I think reaching any one of those goals is an unlikely legislative accomplishment this year or any year, although I'm sure that at the end of this process we will be told by our leaders that they have done all three. The hope that justifies having this session, though, is that there may be a route to reach all three goals and that it may involve the, th the free market. Now, you have formal biographies of all four panelists, and I'm going to deny you the pleasure of hearing me read them aloud. Of our first panelist, Douglas Hulse Eakin, I want to say that he deserves another chance to be a policymaker for a Republican president one of these days. If he's successful, he will probably have to spend a lot of effort and political capital unmaking the mistakes that the U.S. government is in the process of making. I think his con experience at the Congressional Budget Office is probably the, the, what will help him the most at that, new, at that time, because that's one of the few places in Washington where it's as important to disappoint your friends as it is to annoy your adversaries. Mark Pauley is one of two academics on this panel. Uh, no session on free markets is complete without a couple of tenured professors. He teaches public policy issues at a business school, which may be a little like teaching courses on atheism at a seminary. <laughs> I, I, went to, I went to a public policy uh, uh, school in order to learn about business, which is the opposite. I imagine he has a lot more to say on his subjects, on his subjects than his students are ready to hear. He has a lot of experience with those public policy issues, especially in health care, and I expect we'll find his observations very instructive. Steve Parenti is another professor of public policy at a business school, and he's also a data miner using Medicare and private insurance databases to try to figure out what actually goes on in the world of health care. As most all health care providers say that policymakers have no clue about the real world, his job today is to prove them wrong. And Rick Scott, is, who will wrap it up, is a rarity among panelists. A, 
a man who has made a lot of money in health care. At the moment, he's chairman of a chain of urgent care clinics that he founded, but his greater achievement was in building and buying hospitals to create the world's largest private provider of health care. He brings us a painfully close perspective on the relationship between for-profit providers and government payers since his company was the subject of a long and painful investigation into alleged overbilling by Medi- of Medicare. Mr. Scott is also founder of a group called Conservatives for Patient Rights, which is running ads opposing government-run health care. Now, with that, I bring you the first panelist, Douglas Holtzegan. And everybody gets 10 minutes, and we're going to try to make room for, for questions. Well, I want to thank Tom for that, uh, that scintillating introduction. I now know that if things go my way, I will be a disappointment in life. Um, <laughs> That's the way we feel about it. Um, something I, my mother keeps saying. Um, so uh, this is a, 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 an actually an interesting moment in the, the debate over health care policy, to say the least. And uh, it's, it's one that I started thinking about uh, literally from the moment the campaign ended. It was obvious this was going to be part of the, the legislative agenda for this year. And I remain one of these optimistic types who believes that there is something that competition can bring to solving this problem and that uh, competition is something to which our Congress might actually turn to solve the big problems. And so, you know, it's pretty easy to put a bumper sticker out about the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, we spend too much, get too little for what we spend, and cover too few people. And how can competition be brought to bear uh, to solve that problem? Well, uh, there are two answers. Um, uh, one answer is to uh, write down a new reformed healthcare system uh, that could pass the Congress and say, this is going to work, and I've done that. It's in a paper that the Manhattan Institute was nice enough to uh, sponsor and put on their website. Uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, abuse my time here by reading my my proposal to you, but it was intended to be a plan that was sufficiently uh, centrist to actually attract Democrats, uh, could be signed on to by Republicans uh, and supported with uh, good faith, and as a result, actually take this moment in time and move us forward as a nation instead of uh, what we're seeing right now, which is at best... Uh, battle to a draw. It's, it might just end up looking like Ollie Frazier in the end where they're both too tired to fight. And, or we go the wrong direction entirely. So uh, that, that's one way. Is write down a whole plan. A- another way to think about this is simply to, to ask yourself at every point, how can you advocate for better incentives that will improve the performance of the health care system, its delivery system in particular, and better incentives that would improve the performance of the health insurance markets uh, so that we can meet these goals that I think are uh, quite broadly accepted as, as desirable objectives for uh, the future of one-sixth of the U.S. economy. And certainly, uh, I think any conservative, any small government uh, economic conservative, has to be concerned about having one-sixth of the economy underperform on a regular basis, and it would be a good pro-growth uh, initiative to have a sensible market-oriented return uh, reform. So uh, how can we go about doing that uh, remains the question, and, and I think the, the keys are to uh, go back to the kinds of ideas that are floating around in the debate, things like comparative effectiveness, things like health information technology, and reformulate them as, as pro, with incentives that are pro-competition and might actually deliver uh, real results. So how do you do that? Well, uh, think about uh, health information technology for a second. Um, 
You know, the, the stimulus bill approach to health information technology was uh, the moral equivalent of uh, writing checks to buy every American a world almanac so that it all, we all had an almanac on our desk. But if there's no problem that you want to solve with that almanac, it's just going to sit on the desk and it'll be a waste of money. And by simply buying uh, HIT, we're not going to make any real progress. This is a $2 trillion industry. Uh, it, uh, most industries are going to invest you know, 15 to 20% of that in capital investment every year. So we've got a three or $400 billion a year equipment bill. Uh, some of that's going to be HIT. Uh, the government writing checks for HIT is not the solution. The solution is to have a business model that embraces it broadly in the economy so that providers have incentives to use it to solve their business problems. How can you do that? Well, you have to give them some reason to collaborate in a low-cost fashion. And I believe that what we ought to do is take this opportunity in the reform to say to ourselves, who are the high-cost patients? Well, they're, they're the, the, the patients in hospitals with um, uh, conditions that are very expensive and are getting a lot of intensive care. Uh, they are, are, at the moment, in a setting that is utterly dysfunctional, largely due to the government. If you think about how Medicare, in particular, pays, it pays hospitals using DRGs, uh, lump sum amounts that give them an incentive to do less. It pays doctors on the basis of fee-for-service, which gives them a tremendous incentive to do more. Doctors practice in hospitals on these same patients, and we have this schizophrenic system that delivers uncoordinated care uh, with terrible uh, payment incentives, and we, we, we're always stunned that we get such bad outcomes. Why don't we pay everywhere we can in, for an episode of care, pre-admission, hospitalization, uh, post-discharge, pay for the episode of care in a bundled amount to the providers as a group and give them a real incentive to say, gee, there's the money on the table, the costs of, uh, of treating this patient, let's reduce the costs, let's collaborate cheaply using the health information technology, let's not duplicate tests because that's expensive, let's know the patient's history instead of taking an erroneous history from the patient. Let's build a business model using real payment incentives that causes them to, to use the HIT. That would be a good pro-competition, pro-efficiency move in the U.S. healthcare system. It would also give us the right incentives at the input chain. If that's the way our providers are treating patients, they're going to scrutinize every medical device, they're going to scrutinize every uh, drug, and they're going to ask, is this really the low-cost way the most effective way to treat this patient. And there, we can feed genuine business incentives for the kind of, you know, notions that people talk about with comparative effectiveness. Right? Comparative effectiveness is not a complicated or dangerous notion. I know it's acquired all sorts of political uh, uh, lightning rods, but all it is is saying, all right, there are two ways to, to uh, reach an objective. Which one does it a little bit better? I mean, I have very simple objectives. I want to have bad lunches. I can either do Twizzlers and Diet Coke, or I can do Skittles and Diet Coke. I've come to the conclusion that Twizzlers and Diet Coke is comparatively more effective in making me happy with my bad lunches. We just need people to be able to make the same kinds of comparisons in the healthcare system. How can we do that? Give them a reason to pick between them and allow them some information to do it. And so there are places in the treatment of intensive care in, in uh, the hospital setting to do better. We can also do the same thing uh, in uh, the, the outpatient setting for chronic disease, um, 
Uh, it may be a fact. Um, I learned this on the campaign, and on campaigns, the distinction between urban legend and fact gets a little indistinct. But I, I remember it being a fact that the most expensive patient in the, in the American uh, medical world is a depressed diabetic. Why is that? Well, diabetics are expensive because they can, if they don't stay on their regimen, develop all sorts of awful conditions that require very intensive uh, treatment, and depressed diabetics don't care. What's the cheapest way to take care of that? Put them in therapy, buy them antidepressants, monitor them and make sure they stay on their regimen. We don't pay anyone to keep chronic disease patients on their regimens, so we don't pay correctly to lower the costs. We need to change payment systems. We can come back to that if you want. On the insurance side, we simply have very, very, very dysfunctional insurance markets. And, and I think we could do a, a lot to improve the interaction between insurance and, and health care by taking some very simple steps. Uh, for me, it seems to me that the, the right moment now is to recognize that we need to uh, improve the, the functioning in every state. So what do you do? Um, certainly, I'm a believer uh, on uh, the exchange models, but I want Utah's kind of exchange without the heavy regulatory pressures that you get in a, in a Massachusetts-style exchange. Second step, take in the individual market and do some things that we already do in the group market. In particular, have a one-time enrollment for everybody without a, an ex, a pre-existing uh, condition exclusion. Get them all in the pool. And then extend in the individual market the same kinds of uh, HIPAA protections you have in the group market so that if you've got 18 months of coverage, you, you get the, the same credible coverage protections that you have in the group market. What would that do? Well, we would build a more robust individual market. It would be a market once people were in, and we'd have incentives to get them in with the one-time enrollment, insurance companies would own them for life. They would have every reason to deliver a, a design for the insurance that pays for upfront the things that are low cost and improve uh, lifetime outcomes, to avoid expensive, uh, intensive services later in life, and in general, to incent the providers to deliver the right kind of care. That could give us portable insurance, insurance that goes with you from job to job and job to home. It could improve the quality of our insurance markets and, and address the coverage issues much more successfully than uh, big subsidies into uh, broken either uh, current individual markets or, or group markets or, God forbid, expansions in Medicare and Medicaid. So um, I would like to be able to stand up and say, look, here's the vision for healthcare, perfectly free market. I could write that down. Many people in this room could write that down. That's not a political reality. But there are opportunities in this debate this year to bring competition into the system and move us toward a better health care system. And, and those, I think, should be the priorities in looking at reform and give us a chance to, to make this a dynamic that is self-fulfilling in pushing us toward a better health care system in years to come. So will stop there. Thank you. Mark Polly's next. So my answer to the rhetorical question, is there a free market alternative for health reform, is yes. Uh, but, uh, yes, but. And the but part is, yes, I think there is a free market reform uh, version worth thinking about for covering the uninsured as one of the main objectives of health reform. I think that's doable in our lifetime if we have the will to do it. On the other hand, uh, the desire, the strong desire to co contain costs to slow, dramatically slow the rate of growth of spending, I'm much less... 
certain that there is a free market reform, but I can tell you, um, and I will try to tell you, what I think is required for the free market to do uh, to let us know whether it can, in fact, contain costs or not. So I'm going to try to talk about both of those things. Uh, First, what I think are the important principles about free market reform as applied to health insurance markets. There are really three of them. First, neutral incentives for the unsubsidized. So take my tax exclusion, please. Uh, Turn off my tax exclusion. Make my taxes independent of how I get health insurance or how much health insurance I get as a uh, fortunate member of the upper middle class. Um, I would sleep okay at night, I think, and I wouldn't worry too much about my colleagues at the Wharton School or other people in my um, socio-demographic stratum. Uh, for uh, for low-income people, we need what I call – we need subsidies, to, but we need what I would call almost neutral incentives, which effectively are things you've already heard about today, provide a fixed dollar credit, a predetermined credit. My own preference would be for it to vary with income, but you could argue about that, uh, that would help people uh, buy health insurance and then let them choose whatever health insurance they want, subject to very, very limited uh, – uh, constraints on what would be a qualified policy. For example, if you did imagine giving somebody a lower middle class, say, uh, a $6,000 family credit to buy health insurance, uh, one option I think it would be important for them to have is a catastrophic policy with a premium that costs $6,000. Um, if people are rational, they would all buy it, so we would Im- immediately abolish uh, 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 the uninsured. Of course, Kathy Schoen would be worried that they're underinsured, and probably they would be. But uh, as an economist imbued with the principle of diminishing returns, my view is having some insurance is better than having no insurance. And so I'd rather have everybody with some insurance than a small set of us, a smaller and smaller set with actually really good insurance. I'm ashamed of how good my insurance is, but there's that tax break. Uh, I send a Christmas card to the Treasury every year thanking them. Uh, but uh, uh, And instead, have everybody with some coverage and then, then start from there. So those would be the general principles, and I would potentially uh, be in favor. I might as well say this. Um, uh, I tell my students I'm not repeating myself. I'm just being consistent. Uh, But uh, I have advocated for a public plan. My version of a public plan, though, is not what public plan advocates favor. It would be a public plan constrained not to be a dominant plan by antitrust rules or a surrogate for antitrust rules. And the purpose of having it there is, at least it's my perception, that some consumers just don't trust private insurers of either stripe, either nonprofit or for-profit. And why not let them buy their insurance from the post office, so to speak, if that's what would make them be more willing to buy insurance. I'm not sure. I mean, Fonzie is the poster child for the uninsured person, right? A very healthy young person working part-time down at the motorcycle shop. And if the Fonz trusted the government more than he trusted a kindly nonprofit or a blood-sucking capitalist for-profit insurer, uh, as long as it would get him insurance, um, that would be okay with me. Uh, just two two points about the discussion. Um, uh, there wasn't as much of discussion about this today as I thought there was going to be, but I prepared some remarks, and Doug actually brought up some of these issues. So one of the issues in insurance market reform is what to do about the high risks. 
And I think the most important observation here is this is not some kind of reverse Lake Wobegon where almost everybody is a high risk. Instead, the fraction of the population at any point in time that is truly high risk, meaning not that they ex post incurred high medical expenses. Uh, I've been paying fire insurance on my house for 40 years and it's never burned down, but that doesn't mean I'm especially low risk. It just means I've been lucky. Uh, rather, they are people with chronic conditions or whatever that would prompt you to expect there to be high medical expenses. I'd like a better number than this, but I've got some PhD students going out looking to see if they can confirm a number we developed some years ago. Uh, that, just to give you a rough idea of the order of magnitude, if you define a high risk as a person whose expected expense is three times the average, that's about 4% of the under 65, not publicly insured, not on Medicaid population. Uh, those are sad people, and they're the stories we hear all the time at town meetings and such. Uh, but the important th principle, I think, of policy design here is that it seems totally unwise to torque around the whole of the insurance market for the other 97% of the population just to try to deal effectively with that 3%. There's got to be a better way, and there actually is a better way, and there are two better ways to do it. One uh, is um, related to something Doug said. Um, so there is a feature in individual health insurance, which was actually present even before it was required by HIPAA, but is now required by HIPAA, called guaranteed renewability at class average rates. Uh, I'll say a bit more about this in a moment, but the idea that that would be a good device in individual insurance was actually invented by me and by John Cochran at the University of Chicago, only for me to discover with chagrin that insurers had already been doing it all along. The <laughs> fundamental notion is, uh, if you there are some explicitly temporary individual insurance, but if you buy regular individual insurance, the insurer actually promises you, and if the state regulators are on the ball, they'll enforce this promise not to re-underwrite you. So it protects you against what's called reclassification risk. So my view is not that we need to extend HIPAA protection from the group market to the individual market. We need to extend um, uh, guaranteed renewability from the individual market where it currently exists to the small group market where it currently does not exist, except in the uh, uh, the COBRA version, but that, of course, runs out after 18 months and doesn't apply to really small firms. And the fundamental idea is actually brilliant. Um, we thought that, although easy when you think about it. The vision is you're age 30, you are Yellowwitz Consulting, and you didn't take your job at Kentucky, and uh, you're healthy, you're a magnificent specimen, but uh, you worry, and so you buy individual insurance, and the premium you pay at age 30 is actually two premiums. One part pays for any medical expenses you occur when you're age 30, and it covers that, however well it covers it. And then the other part essentially creates a fund, should you become high risk, to pay for you uh, to obtain insurance later in life at the average or normal risk premium. So you've basically protected yourself against risk reclassification. This is a wonderful idea, and at least our research suggests it actually works out in practice, believe it or not. Uh, and it actually does provide pretty good protection and sort of exists. Exhibit A for that is a study that we published in Health Affairs to uh, thunder, thunderous silence, uh, but a study that uh, basically asked the question, think of a person with small group insurance in year one, and what was the chances that they lost their insurance in year two? And then think of a person with individual insurance in year one, and what was the chances? And on average, people with individual insurance are more likely to lose their coverage. Not surprising. It's expensive. It's not that it's expensive for high risk. It's expensive for everybody. And so, you know, people being people need some money, they drop their coverage. But 
If you looked at the people whose health was classified as fair or poor, the sick people, then the probability that you would lose your coverage if it was small group coverage, if you worked for a, it was 40% higher than the probability that you would lose your coverage if it was individual coverage. So individual coverage actually does provide that protection. And so my solution would be to the problem of risk variation is twofold. One would be solve the problem in the long run by requiring insurance to be guaranteed renewable. There's more things we could talk about. My German friends who have this kind of insurance there say the problem is you are married to your insurance company. Uh, so there's an issue of how you could change companies and discipline the company, but I think that's solvable if you have a will. Uh, and then the other would be to mop up the current high risks with a high-risk pool, offering them not too attractive but kind of decent insurance for not too low a premium, But so we don't want to make it better to be in the high-risk pool than to buy guaranteed renewable coverage, but at least do something. The other thing, cost containment. So a lot of discussion of the word we and we should do this and we should do that has been thrown about enormously this morning. Uh, The Commonwealth Foundation's do list is probably as good a one as any. How about a medical home? How about more preventive care? How about bundled payment? How about use of IT? One thing they don't say, I think they should have, is how about insurance premiums that are adjusted depending on whether how you maintain your lifestyle. Smokers pay more. Uh, high cholesterol people pay more, high, high BMI people pay more, of course, unless it's due to genes, but uh, they pay more. Uh, and and those all sound to me like kind of reasonable things when I hear about them, because you almost always hear about them from the cheerleaders. The one thing that they don't mention in this list, and I think is important to have on the list, why is healthcare spending growing? It's not because waste is growing. There's waste. But it's not getting worse and worse. We actually know the reason healthcare spending grows is because of the introduction of beneficial but costly new technology, David Cutler's greatest discovery, although my mother could have told him. Uh, and so the, the and uh, if you really want to control healthcare spending growth, you have to control the rate of addition of beneficial but costly new technology. My dad used to tell us every December, kids, it's going to be a bad Christmas this year. Of course, he was just teasing us. It was always a great Christmas. But medical Christmases, if we want to control healthcare spending growth, I'm not sure whether we do or not, but if we do, medical Christmases have to get a little less attractive than they have been historically. And um, I think if we want to have a serious discussion about cost containment, we need to talk about that and not what's wrong in McAllen, Texas, uh, or, uh, or whether every doctor should look at the computer instead of the patient or, you know, whatever is a better solution there. Well, there is a free market solution to all of this, right? So we have these interventions. If there was an FDA for cost containment, none of these interventions, I think, would meet the test of being guaranteed safe and effective. There are some that are effective, like high levels of out-of-pocket payment, high-deductible health plans, or Rambo HMOs, but some people think those aren't safe. And there are some things that are safe, like a kind and gentle uh, medical home, but nobody knows whether they'll be effective or not. But the way to settle this is not for us to settle it. It's for the market to settle it. So let the market settle out which of these devices work. Um, the conversation this morning with Alan Entoven and Reggie Herslinger was instructive here because it raised the question of, well, if these are such great ideas, why has the market had such a hard time uh, going with them? One possible answer is they're not that great a set of ideas ideas. Maybe the, what we've got is the best there is. Uh, it's terrible, but it's, you know, 
winter's inefficient, but what can we do about it? Uh, the, the, other, the other point, though, is there may be some impediments. Of course, my main impediment is the tax subsidy to employment-based health insurance, which makes me choose the most generous plan offered at Penn. Uh, there is, and I agree with Doug on this, a potential role for government in providing better information through comparative effectiveness analysis. Uh, put the information out there. My proposal was every household should have a comparative effectiveness voucher which it would send to various organizations providing that research, and then that research would be used for their benefits. And so, uh, uh, and of course, enforce antitrust rules. Let's have neutral incentives, unbiased rules, good information, and declare victory. <laughs> Thanks. It'll be, it will be difficult to declare victory against you, I think. <laughs> Steve Perenti is up next. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, uh, folks at Cato. Uh, Mark's always a hard act to follow. Actually, Doug, too. Um, well, it's just a pleasure to speak to you. I'm, I'm at a B school, uh, like Mark. Um, a few things I want to just put out there, uh, general comments that are going to lead into uh, a potential solution that I may have had a crack at if, uh, if, if Doug had roped me into something. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, the first one is that uh, without the private insurance industry, which is heavily demonized all the time, we would have no Medicare. Uh, it wasn't the pl- it was actually uh, the model by which the Blue Cross model that was used in 1965-66. That's history, but actually reality, as in every claim that's rolling through right now as we sit here in this room, is that basically uh, private insurance carriers make Medicare run. Uh, some of them are for-profit firms. Some of them are non-for-profit firms. But CMS itself doesn't touch one claim. So when we, when we all think about demonizing the private sector and what doesn't work, it's important to start with the thing that's being held up as the saving grace of Medicare for all itself is not really going to be there. So that might give you a flavor of where I'm going. The second thing is fee-for-service. I know it's been demonized. To me, the, the medical home market is kind of a march back to capitation circa 1974, except maybe with a little bit of health IT that's optional. Um, that didn't work very well. That's why it actually went to the PPO and IPA markets back in the 80s and 90s. But that aside, fee-for-service did give us one thing, which is the grist for the Dartmouth Atlas and Atul Gawanda's uh, place in, in the New Yorker. The Dartmouth Atlas is entirely keyed off of fee-for-service claims. There's not Kaiser data in there because it doesn't show up in the Medicare claims database. So if we're going to really kill that whole idea that uh, we don't really like this system and it's inefficient, keep in mind it's about the best surveillance system that we have to date. Also keep in mind the Dartmouth Atlas is principally populated with Medicare data, and the commercial data doesn't necessarily feed in to show what's going on. So I apologize for showing my data, minor, data mining stripes, um, but, but there they are. One point I'm going to come back to is a central theme is that I think the healthcare industry, if it wants to find a free market alternative, and I agree with Mark, yes, there definitely can be one. Uh, Parker's already living with one now, is that it needs to move to more of a retail model. And I have an article in there that talks about this weird concept called medical banking as a way that health IT can be uh, put together. And I'm not going to so given that the banking industry has gotten a bad uh, rap, I'm not going to describe why banking was used now. I'm just going to tell you euphemistically all the wonderful things it can achieve if it actually goes forward. But uh, the reason why I'm focusing on the retail sector is that um, if you think about the Coburn-Ryan bill talking about debit cards and that type of technology, 
and you want to really play it out about six, seven stages further, I'm going to give you a vignette in a second, uh, that could do an awful lot of good to actually put all the things we would like to see in this market in place through the, through the free marketplace or through, through entrepreneurship. Uh, so why, why a retail mar- market? Why does that make sense? Think about when you go and buy anything that's not healthcare. Uh, like, say, if you go to Best Buy, Twin Cities retailer that's grown nationally, and you want to buy a large screen TV. Uh, generally, when you go buy that large screen TV, it doesn't work the same way it does for healthcare. You don't you don't take the 65 incher out to the uh, to the, uh, the the dude that's sitting there by the cash register and say, "Hey, I'll tell you what, we'll settle this up later. Uh, here's my card. We'll talk, and then away you go." Right? I mean, basically, you have to have that thing. Uh, be paid for before you go. Now, how does that pay-for aspect actually work? When that credit card swipe occurs, it actually reaches out to your credit card status. It knows what your uh, risk score and FICO score and underwriting score is. It knows if those accounts are open or closed. It knows if the store you're in is in the same zip code roughly within a 50-mile proximity of where you're actually living to see whether this could be fraud or not. And it does all that behind the scenes. That sounds sort of like, well, that's retail. Why do I really care? Well, that same thing could be done for eligibility checks. I, I heard a lot of doctors earlier. I sat through the day. It's great conversations. Just to show of hands, who are physicians here? Show of hands. That's, pr- that's better than most lectures I've ever been to. That's pretty good. So let me tell you something, docs. How do you guys feel about making free loans to me and insurance companies? Because that's effectively what you do now by not subscribing to a retail model. Right now, um, about less than 1% of all transactions that move through, that is payment transactions in retail, are basically uh, not handled by paper, meaning that they're all electronic going through. In healthcare, a recent McKinsey study, 2007, said 90% of transactions are being touched manually in the healthcare sector. And besides the cost of your uh, doctor's office paying for the staff to do that, uh, actually I actually have a student in front here, uh, Mike Ramlett, who did a study with me uh, just past fall that actually put an estimate on the accounts receivable estimate, a little micro simulation. You're basically leaving about 10 to $15 billion per year just in the physician community on the cost of financing that money because of a 60-day wait and getting paid. So why am I saying all this? Why, how does this relate back to health market reforms? Well, let me give you a little more background. Um, I spent, uh, was privileged to spend time as a volunteer advisor to the McCain campaign. Doug roped me in back when the campaign had not many resources. It was uh, in between, it was right after the immigration gaffe when uh, it was a struggle to keep the power on, it seemed, in the offices at that time. Um, I, got, I was uh, doing a lot of micro-simulation work. Uh, I'm actually the principal of HSI, the group that mentioned uh, Paul Ryan's $4 trillion estimate. Go to hsinetwork.com if you want the report. It's free. Um, but what I wanted to do, had McCain won, was actually be the CMS administrator. Very audacious, but I'm losing hair. And let me tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to give all you physicians out there a debit card technology, and here's what I wanted to do with it. I wanted to have that technology pay you for about 90% of the HCPCS codes that you use, the healthcare procedure codes, in four days or less. Okay? Now, uh, right now, the standard issue or standard wait for, uh, is about 40 or 50 days or less. Now, you might say, well, that's very altruistic of you, Steve. Why are you thinking so much of us in that way? Uh, well, I, like Gail Walensky, have a spouse as a physician, so I guess it could be selfish on my part to sort of think that way. Uh, so that could be part of it. But, but more importantly, actually, there's a quid pro quo that I'm looking for, not so much from you, but actually from laboratory vendors. 
So another question. How many folks here have ever seen an electronic medical record? Show of hands. Well, that's kind of scary. That's slightly less than the physicians that hands that went up. But um, when electronic medical record, if we demystify the word, which sounds just magical, right? Basically, there's three or four major components to electronic medical record. The first one is essentially the, uh, the stuff that you always see, the little chart notes that are down. That's probably the least interesting to use for the, except for a lawsuit case in terms of what you need to actually manage care. The, there's also vitals that are down. Those can be all recorded in terms of blood pressure and weight. But the stuff where it really gets interesting is the lab values. That's what the disease management companies spend literally tens of millions of dollars to get after the fact, generally 60 days after the fact, to actually manage care. Now, the interesting thing, if we think about solutions in the private sector, is about 75% of laboratory tests are done by national laboratory vendors today, which means all the stuff they're doing is electronic. What I'm suggesting is those services, the hemoglobin A1C test for the diabetic, you will the requirement would be they would then have to attach the hemoglobin A1C value onto the claim. And they might come back and say, as some of them have, that I don't want to do that. That's an extra cost. I want to charge you extra for that. But my point is that the reason why we're paying you faster is fraud mitigation. Now, that has nothing to do with quality, but as as an economist, you can talk about the positive externality about getting this lab data. Because when we all talk about getting quality, I can tell you that, uh, actually my father used to joke, Actually, it was a professor, not my father. My father would never say this. But my, this one professor I had at the University of Rochester, Bob Burke, used to say, he was bald, almost like me. He has everything gone. He said, I lost a hair every time I made love. Okay? Uh, and I don't think I can go that far. I think I can say I lost a hair every time I made an assumption with claims data that I felt nervous about. <laughs> so what, what I would say is that if you can somehow... Uh, get this information. And then for the imaging stuff, which is the other part of electronic medical record, probably 30%, attach the URL for digital images. They're there right now. They're secure. Let's go through that platform. If you did those two things with lab values and with uh, images, you have negated the point of having an electronic medical record system, and you can essentially have this go through the existing claims processing system now. Now, you might say, does this have to go to Congress? No, because it's part of fraud mitigation. And here's the most troublesome part. If you do anything with CMS that actually involves anything else other than paying the claim, you have violated the statute of CMS. That's why when you see disease management and everything else like that, it basically is a demonstration. All right? However, I'm admitting my Trojan horse to you now. If you put it under the rubric of this needs to be done for fraud mitigation, otherwise this stuff is wrong. And that's actually the same comment back to the lab vendor with LabCorp or Quest and comes back and says, well, we're not going to do this. We don't really agree with it. The comment could come back to them simply to say, you know, if you don't give it to us, we're going to assume this is fraud and just deny it. Now, why CMS? CMS commands 40% of all the transactions of data in this country. All right? And as a result, if CMS does this, to quote my wife, then I'll pay attention. Any other individual private insurer, even ones the scale of United, Aetna, Cigna, not enough. Because they deliberately only and somewhat strategically take 20% of the market space. If you got this information this way, physicians get paid faster. You have additional clinical metrics. You can implement it right now. It doesn't require an additional pay for to worry about it. And it would give you the ability to do the key thing, fraud checking, at the point of sale, just like modern retail does and you would finally have the data for clinical effectiveness. So entrepreneurs out there, go ahead and do this. Actually, I've, I've, I, since I am no longer in the, in the politics part of the campaign, I found a few alumni at the Carlson School to take this idea. They formed an LLC. They're going to see what they can do. 
Uh, that's, that's one way of getting the free market alternative um, onto the market space. And uh, one thing I'll say, one further comment is that uh, the Obama administration, in my mind, can signal that they're serious about bending the cost curve down, not by expanding coverage, but by actually appointing a CMS administrator. Because right now, near as I can tell by estimates, $400 billion just got spent without someone with someone's hand on the helm. Thank you. First, th thanks to Cato. Thanks for the invitation um, to uh, come today. I think I'm here because I'm the only person they could pick that is foolish enough to invest in this highly regulated industry and also put their money up to try to impact policy. The, uh, I'll, just, I'll give you my background, and I'll tell you why I believe the way I believe. Um, I started Columbia HCA with $125,000, and in 10 years, built a company that was taking care of over 100,000 patients a day. We had 30 or $24 billion of uh, revenues and about $35 billion of value. Uh, that's what the company was worth. And at the same time, all we did was we focused on the patient. We've, we always focused on, on three things. How could, we, how could we reduce our costs more than, better than anybody else? How could we have better outcomes than everybody else? And how, we, how could we have better patient satisfaction than everybody else? So on the cost side, we were relentless. The, mo the meanest, if you take the most contra controversial thing I did in the 10 years I built Columbia, is I picked Pepsi over Coke. I got a stack of letters and petitions that tall <laughs> when I picked $26 million a year to me. I was a restaurant chain, 500,000 meals a day. So if I did, I did that type of thing. I picked, I picked Fuji over Kodak, and I didn't do any of these things. I just set up a system. Picked two vendors for uh, hip replacements instead of 23. And each of, those, each of the things we did cut out 20 to $40 million of cost a year. So at the end from the time, probably my average, what supply cost in the beginning to when I left at the end of 10 years, it was probably on an annualized basis, probably about $2 billion a year. So when they did a study, and Gail Walensky's firm did a study for us, we had the lowest prices of what we got paid if you took us versus not-for-profit, us versus other investor-owned, us versus government hospitals. We had the lowest prices in the industry. On outcomes, I said, look, if I'm going to get criticism, I'm going to make sure that, one, I'm going to beat everybody on cost, and two, I'm going to beat everybody on outcomes. Well, when you have 343 hospitals, 150 surgery centers, you know, it's easy to measure things. So we had 95 open-heart programs. We said... You will be the lowest in your market in the next – you've got two years to get there for mortality or we'll close your program. Now, in, in the hospital community, you make money in cardiovascular. You make money in orthopedics. You make money – a lot of money off of uh, diabetics. But so it was very important to everybody in the hospitals because they all wanted to get their bonuses on top of uh, being success, successful. First year, we dropped mortality 40 percent. So it took us two – within two years, we had the lowest mortality of, in every – city that we uh, we had a hospital. So, and then we, we did every piece of that. We said, okay, well, how else can we be measured? Uh, we did joint commission accreditation with accommodation. 5% of the hospitals in the country had it. 40% of ours did. Every hospital in Florida had gotten 100% for three years running or for four years running, something like that. We did patient satisfaction. We did 125,000 uh, uh, telephone interviews a quarter. Our average patient satisfaction was 94%. Most important in the hospital business, admission, what was it like? Discharge was my food cold into the response to the call button. That's how you get a good reputation. So we were 94%. The average in the, the other hospitals average was a little uh, under above 80%. So just everything I've done in every company, and I've invested in a variety of uh, healthcare community, country, uh, companies, has always been price, 
quality service. So this, the latest company that I'm the chairman of and just as co-founder uh, is a company called Solantic. If you look in the, in the uh, package of information, it has all of our prices up there. You walk in, it's urgent care center, 3,500 square feet, staffed by board-certified family practitioners and Med docs. Walk in, there's a menu board just like Starbucks. $89 to see a board-certified family practitioner. You get one procedure, and you decide if you want something. 149 if you get the works. X-ray, suture, clean the wound, everything, $229. We're one-sixth of cost of a visit in, if, you, if your choice was come to us or go to an ER for the exact same service. And we're one-tenth to one-fifteenth if, you, if you're paying out of pocket. Uh, and, and you can still make money. So, so every th- and some of the other things we do, we don't hire smokers. We're only in Florida to date. We uh, give people $25 a month if they're within 5% of their ideal body mass index. All the things that, that I've always believed in that could you know, keep price quality service We've, we've tried to do all those things. We're talking about uh, healthcare IT. I had, um, when I was in the hospital business, I had a $200 million a year uh, budget for IT, and, the re- and I had one system for all the hospitals, all the physicians, all the uh, uh, surgery centers, and the reason was is it saved me money because what cost me money is when I had two, when you came in and, and the hospital said you, got, you probably got admitted three or four times in the radiology group when you got admitted, maybe when you went in pathology. So we figured out a system. We got everybody on one, and we gave them a little card, and they all kept them. Ninety-five percent of the patients kept the card for our benefit, but it made us money. In Solantic, we started with an electronic medical record uh, when we started, and it was a disaster. First off, how many people want to see their physician uh, look at a chart or look at a computer? Second, we would do electronic uh, prescribing. They would go to the Walgreens. They would never, never open up the email before they got there. So we, we got rid of it. Now we, we have paper charts. We scan everything, but we have one system that we can uh, attract data out of. In, our, in all of our, we see about 400,000 patients a year. In any location you go to, you can get uh, what you have. So my time's up. But if you look at if in our package, we put our four pillars. It basically says the same thing, choice, competition, um, give the same people individuals tax breaks as employers, and uh, give people personal responsibility. Thanks. Now, I'd just like to say one thing in his praise, too, that time wasn't up. Uh, he took less than the uh, than the allotted amount of time, which uh, brings us to the question period. And I would like to, and I would like to start with a with a with, a, with something that uh, that that always makes me, makes me wonder: How is it that when we have uh, calls for uh, for health care reform and health insurance reform, that we almost always exclude small businesses where? A very large number of Americans are employed, and where a very large number of Americans have trouble getting health insurance. Why is it that we are so uh, solicitous of the smallest businesses uh, compared to large businesses? Anybody got one for got an answer for that? I didn't think so. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, who out there would like to have, ask a question of these fine panelists? Sir. Uh, my name is that on? My name is David Riley. I own an insurance brokerage in uh, Maryland. Um, your approach to healthcare, I think, is um, really the first time that I've seen this. 
um, it's something that I talk to my clients about. My clients ask me about quite a bit. You know, why can't we go into Starbucks and look at the list on the wall? And, and this list is the list on the wall. My question has to do with um, the insurance. If I were to go in, I can pay cash for these services, but with a client walking in with some sort of insurance card, how does that operate in the context of, uh, of your uh, model here? Yeah. About 80, 80% of our patients walk in with insurance, although about less than half of our reimbursement comes from the insurance company. So over 50%, it's going up every month because of copayments and deductibles. So what we do is when you walk in, somebody's supposed to greet you, and they say, how can we help you? And they'll, they'll ask you how you want to pay. Do you want to pay you know, out with your own money, or do you want to pay with insurance? And if you use insurance, we'll tell you before you go back what your copayment is, what your deductible is. So you're never surprised. We don't want anybody to go, to, go back unless, you know, it's like, you know, unless there's an issue that they have to deal with, be dealt with quickly. We want everybody to know exactly what everything is going to cost. If you go back and you have, you need to get a tetanus shot, we'll tell you exactly what, and it's right on that price, we'll tell you exactly what it costs. On top of that, all of our lab tests, we have, we have a separate sheet of any lab test you want to come in. An individual that works with us at uh, uh, Conservative Patients' Rights, he said he could, he lives here, he said he could have flown to, he just had a physical, he has a uh, HSA, he could have flown to uh, Jacksonville or one, any of our cities and gotten and paid for the, the airfare and got everything done for less money. So, but you choose everything we do. Yes, sir. No, I'm sorry, this gentleman right here. Here comes the microphone. Wait a moment. Wait a moment for him. Bob Blanford from Consumers for Healthcare Choices. I wonder if anyone on the panel would like to discuss uh, why there are these big variations uh, in healthcare costs across the United States as seen in the Dartmouth maps. Uh, well, let me start. Uh, there are two reasons. One is there are variations in the population served that are not taken into account. So McAllen, Texas, has a heavily Hispanic population. I'm sure that contributes to some extent to their uh, high health care costs uh, uh, or, or, and or uh, their outcomes, although their outcomes are actually pretty good. The worst places for Medicare spending are Louisiana, the Mississippi Gulf Coast. The, one of the best places is Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, it has to do, I think, the actually distance to the Canadian border uh, is a pretty good predictor of low health care spending. But more generally, I think social dysfunction uh, contributes a lot to both high health care costs and bad health care outcomes. The reason the costs are high is because the people are sick because they're not good at taking care of themselves. The other thing is Jack Weinberg's original idea. Doctors don't know what they're doing half the time. Uh, and when they don't know what they're doing, different ones do different things. And sometimes they do a lot and sometimes they don't do as much. Now, I don't believe the supply-induced demand theory, so I don't think anybody knows uh, the, the puzzle is not to explain why some doctors do a lot. It's why in the, some of those places don't they do as much, and it's not just the Mayo Clinic. Uh, but um, uh, the, the dilemma, of course, is if the doctors who are treating in a more um, resource-intensive way, that's the only way they know how to treat that condition. Uh, you know, giving McAllen the Minneapolis budget isn't going to cause the doctors there to suddenly know how to treat more economically. They may actually stint on care, and it can harm people. So uh, until uh, until uh, medicine becomes more evidence-based so that it can be regularized, I, I think uh, the, the, the kind of the policy implication of what you do with this data, as opposed to the outrage implication, is pretty pretty ambiguous. What do you do about it? 
Uh, who knows? So is it a if, Give them more information and so beat they, them around the head and shoulders. If good, if, if good uh, health care is, uh, is measured by uh, proximity to the Canadian border, which I would take as a proxy for living in cold climates, is it a huge mistake for retirees to move to Florida? Well, actually, the second best place to get a good health outcome, health outcome in the U.S. is Florida, south of Jacksonville. Um, ma'am, you had a question. And here comes the microphone. Gene Montgomery. Uh, the one thing that really hasn't been talked about in any of the sessions so far, and uh, I guess I'll address it to this session since you're the last one, uh, <laughs> nobody's really talked about the 80-20 problem here in terms of shifting costs or changing uh, uh, the, the prices around for different people uh, depending on their risk. And I've, uh, I was interested here in the uh, number of 3% of the population having three times uh, uh, the cost, uh, three times above the average uh, cost here, which makes it sound like it's not as bad as I thought it was. Uh, is there any sense here of what, uh, what the amounts of money would be for that would raise the, the how, how, how the cost should be apportioned? Are you going to talk about uh, just having um, uh, the, ex, the outliers be financed uh, through the taxpayer? Are we talking about cost shifting, spreading the, the numbers around to okay. other payers? Well, well let's, let's just deal with the Medicare population because we have the 80-20 rule that goes on there. Um, one of the issues you got to, and people talked about this vaguely before, but I mean, you're going to, if you want to actually address that, you're going to be rationing someplace somehow. You might get more efficiencies out of the system, but the reality is you have, um, you don't have a lot of coordinated care on average in the U.S. Uh, you have um, a culture that more or less says treat, treat, treat as symptoms keep to progress until someone more or less says no. And that we as a wealthy society have a very hard time at the end of life saying no. Uh, there are societies like in England and other places that have less of a hard time saying that because they came out of World War II budget-constrained and stayed budget-constrained, and that, that was their effect. They still have a, their own 80-20 rule, but the differential is not as big in part because if someone gets to be above the age of 80 and they got more than two or three complicating conditions, the word hospice is mentioned as opposed to a further procedure. In guaranteed renewability, the 80% voluntarily subsidize the 20% because of the proposition that that could be them. And um, in my view, that's much better than community rating, which is the dumbest way I can think of to do a good thing, which is to help out high-risk people. But there are better ways to help out high-risk people than community rating, for sure. Gentleman in a white shirt back there. Hi, I'm Dave Dingley. I'm a recovering former managed care executive. <laughs> current uh, uh, small business owner that has managed care clients. Um, this morning when they were talking about health system reform, um, I really had a very strong sense of deja vu. We were all here 15, 16 years ago talking about the exact same problems. And having sort of worked in the trenches, you know, we were supposed to be sort of the, the people that, that helped drive these changes through um, to get to these sort of coordinated care systems and these you know, improved quality and all of that. And I salute Rick for having actually uh, accomplished uh, some things in a very difficult environment. But in, in looking back as to why are we still in the same place and why haven't we really made more progress, 
um, and in fighting sort of this creeping statism uh, or the you know fighting this battle against those who would sort of turn over more to the state, we have to make the case that the market still can work even though it sort of didn't back then. And I have to conclude that the real – the huge reason I think that, that we were unsuccessful uh, in our field at, at, at really changing the way things happened was that you know, we were really outgunned by Medicare. Um, Medicare is still the 800-pound gorilla. It still is the most important uh, fact of life for every physician in most hospitals, and it's an enormously powerful force in terms of locking in these sort of uh, um, these sort of poor practices in medicine and fee-for-service medicine. It just makes it very difficult to really drive the kind of change that is needed when you have this 800-pound gorilla. And I would hate to see us go even further down that road with the public plan. And I think that's you know, a, a perfect example of how we could go the wrong way. So just discuss among yourselves. Doug, I don't think I heard a question, uh, but I think you could probably address the, uh, the thought that uh, Medicare oh, I, drives our, drives I, our I, I think the, this is right on the mark. And one of the reasons that I've, I've structured the sort of rifle shot proposals that I favor uh, is that Medicare can drive so much in the way of practice patterns uh, in the United States. It is, in fact, an enormous influence on uh, medicine. And, and we ought to do our very best to uh, use the payment systems in Medicare to deliver uh, better quality care. And, you know, there are lots of problems with Medicare, but the, the political reality is this. Um, despite all the rhetoric about insurance companies and drug companies and all those evil actors, uh, healthcare reform is about doctors and hospitals. And changing payments to doctors and hospitals in Medicare is going to be hard because there isn't a congressional district in America that doesn't have doctors and hospitals. And so that's the right policy, and the question is, can we get enough collective political will to change these payment streams to deliver uh, better incentives? It, just, just quickly, that, that weird idea that I was throwing out, it, it's the type of thing, if that thing was, went into play, it would give you the quality metrics that could actually give the payment reform system that Doug is talking about, because that, that's part of the issue. I mean you got to ask yourself why the fee-for-service system is there. Why do we like it? Why does it still pre- – it's, 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 the reason is pretty simple. It's the simplest thing it can do, actually. Everything else beyond that sort of complicates conflict of interest issues. It's one thing that contributes to what Regina Herzlinger talked before about. Um, so if you, if you can actually streamline that to work better and get the incentives a different way um, – the interesting thing about Medicare is that any innovation that we have in terms of health IT and what we take for granted sometimes in the research or performance community about HEDIS measures and quality scores, all that came because of uh, data field requirements from Medicare that basically got picked up by the rest of the private insurance industry. You know, the, the most significant sentinel point was 1992 with the RBRVS change in Medicare when suddenly diagnosis codes and procedure codes had to be standardized. Without that, we wouldn't have a quality report card to save our life. Rick, did you have something? Yeah, I, I, think, I think government causes most of the problems. I think that, um, you know, our four pillars is, one, everybody ought to post their prices and their results on, online and, and disclose them. I think the way that we're raising copayments and deductibles for typical employment, employer-based health care and the HSAs will drive everybody to think about how they spend their money. I mean, that's Everything I've invested in the last 12 years has gone is saying I'm going to go after the consumer because ultimately that's the, only thing, that's the only way you really own your business. If you rely on Medicare or Medicaid, you don't own the business because they can change the reimbursement any day you want. I think the other thing is having everybody get the same tax break so they own their own health care plans. I think that will drive uh, I think that'll drive changes. But, I mean, Medicare is, you know, a pain to deal with, but 
But the truth is, it's, it's, we have certificate of need laws that say, I can't build a hospital because somebody already has. And then we watched, we watched as what we ended up having is in every market, we have two delivery systems now. What's your incentive to cut your prices? You don't have one. And then we say, why are health care costs so high? So if the, free, if the government would allow there to be a real free market, I think health care costs would, dry, would, drive, would come way down. There's plenty of margin in the business. Can I say one more sir, thing? The, oh, I'm sorry. Sure. I just want to say one more thing about this. I think this is right on the mark about this sort of transparency. Uh, when I was on MedPAC, we, we did this sort of uh, exercise where we took all the Medicare claims associated with bypasses and, and grouped them into episodes of care, uh, the, pre, you know, the pre-op, the discharge, follow-up, all of that stuff. And if you went into specific areas and adjusted for the risk of the patient, there would be uh, four- and five-fold variations in the cost of an episode of care. And the docs had no idea. I mean, if, number one, we just displayed this, the high-cost guys might ask themselves, what am I doing that I am five times more expensive than the next guy? And number two, the taxpayers are paying for this. We have a right to know what we're getting for our money. And the fact that we don't put this out there is just wrong. Here's, here's another way to think about it. There's nothing wrong with fee-for-service if you set the fee right and the services right. So, for example, if you know how many uh, bypass procedures you want a given population to have, there is a supply curve out there. Supply at a price of zero is zero. Uh, there, w- there should be a unique price that Medicare would pay that would get surgeons just willing to do exactly the right number of fee-for-service procedures, not overdo it, not underdo it. And it's just a matter of having enough nerve to – having enough knowledge to find it and enough nerve to implement it. The latter is usually what's in shortest supply. Can I add one more thing? Sure, please. When, when, I, when I had all the 95 – I had the 95 open-heart programs, I looked at average – you know, costs we did, and and we did everything we could to get our prices down. But buyers were buyers were foolish. Managed care didn't drive people. Like I, I can give you an example. I bought when I started. Uh, some of my first two markets were Fort Myers and Miami, so it's two and a half hours apart. I think the cost for bypass surgery was triple in Fort Myers. What we got paid is what we got paid in Miami. Uh, it was triple. And but at the same time, did employers care? Did managed care companies care? So whose fault is it? Is it, is it, you know, it's, you know, we have a system that people weren't focused on it. If it's, if they have, if everybody has some skin in the game, then they'll care more. I, I looked at doing, uh, starting a company in uh, medical tourism, and I, and I spent a whole bunch of time looking at it, and I came to the conclusion that today, while we could, we could drive down, I've got a friend that has a bunch of hospitals in Mexico. I said, are you getting any American patients down there today? Because he said his cost could be half. I think his cost should be a quarter, but, but. Could be, it could be half. He's getting almost none. If you look, I talked to a guy that used to work for me, runs a medical tourism company, and they were talking about how all these thousands of people are going all over the world. I asked, he, is the, he supposedly has the biggest company, and he was, for bypass surgery, if you go to Apollo in India, it was going to be one-tenth or something. He has eight patients a month going out of the country. So we, it's our own, there's easy, it's easy, it's not that hard to reduce costs. We just have to spend our own dollars. Yes, sir, in the back. You, yes. <laughs> Nobody behind you. Thank you so much. I have a purpose to come here today. I told uh, one of the assistants to one senator. Um, I, I heard a lot of you know, opinion from all, all the you know, different directions. I think a, a lot of very valuable, but I'm a physicist. I always solve problems. Louder, please. Yes, sir. I, I'm a physicist. I always solve problems from the very basic, uh, easy way. And as a matter of fact, I bring this uh, message today from Georgetown. In Georgetown, we had uh, some conversation, okay, in, the, in our community. 
uh, the number of a primary doctor reduced, you know, for the past uh, 10, 15 years from 50, 50 to like 30, 70. Okay, so that's the primary problem actually. The primary primary doctor, if we somehow the government or private foundation, they can subsidize just offset their the primary doctors are loan, you know, student loan, for example, about one hundred eighty five thousand after they graduate, and their salary like uh, one hundred seventy five something like that. So they just don't have incentive to uh, practice primary care. So that's the, the key issue, actually. Once that's the issue solved, I believe a lot of things is just so minor. i give you a one example. Uh, prevention is the most a question, important. question, sir? Medicine, yes. Prevention. Okay, for example, there's an aid from a doctor. This is about the hemorrhoid. Okay, the, the doctor described if you have these things, they do the, you know, embolize and then take care of that, right? In the end of the eight, see what they said. So the, the question is, uh, okay, after the, after the surgical, you know, procedure, uh, what, is, what the patient should do? You still have to have high fiber, you know, yeah, uh, uh, diet. So this says a lot. This ad says a lot. Yes, that procedure take care of the hemorrhoid issue, okay? But in the end, the prevention care is the most important. So you have to have a if I could If I could just sum that up for a second. There's a, there is a, uh, there's a widespread belief that preventive care uh, will save the, uh, the system a lot of money. And there are, there's a rather rather smaller number of people who uh, who say no, it's actually going to cost us money. But uh, I'd be interested to know where you all uh, come down on. Listen, that. listen. From the thirty percent, can we have the answer now? Oh sure, the thirty percent, then seventy percent issue. Give the nice lady your, your microphone. Thank you. <laughs> so, I, who, who would uh, like to with regard to the thirty percent uh, primary physicians versus fifty fifty, the last thing. The very last thing that we want to walk out of this room and suggest is that the U.S. government use some sort of subsidy to pick the workforce for the medical community in the future. That would be a disaster. So I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that notion. Any other comments from this? this well, we're, we're, we're doing, I mean, prevention as an example. We don't hire smokers. So if you want to come to work at Solantic, you, you better not, you have to stop. And two, we give you $25 a month if you stay within. Um, Five percent of your ideal body mass index, and so our healthcare costs. I'll tell you an interesting number, though. Our healthcare costs on a monthly basis for an employee is like two sixty nine. We looked at some numbers on ehealth.com. If our average employee went and bought the insurance on their own, it'd be forty percent less. So, I I, I, actually, I score most of the proposals. Um, I sent in finance, Coburn, Kennedy. Every one of them has um, a prevention component. I scored a zero. There's just not enough evidence out there. Actually, it's not that there's not enough evidence. It's just that it's, it's ambiguous. It goes in positive and minus. Other than flu shots, not much to score. Okay. Thank, thank you, sir. Um, we'll take it up, take it up after, the, uh, after the session. Sir, right here. Just one brief comment as a primary care physician. Back in the old days, we used to make most of our diagnosis by history and physical with very low tech, an EKG, HS X-ray, and maybe a couple of lab tests. Uh, now, uh, the primary care physician is not paid for his time. So he has to see 30, 40 patients a day. He doesn't have time to talk to them, and he uses high technology, which is more expensive. So, you know, consider that. 
I think that uh, back in Georgetown, Dr. Harvey used to tell us that the diagnosis of a patient, the correct diagnosis, were like the fingers of your hand. Your thumb is your history. And this motion is what distinguishes you from an ape. <laughs> Rick, how, much, how, how many people do, do you, uh, does a, a typical doctor in your urgent care facility uh, see in a we, day? And we see between, they see between four and five patients an hour. The, di- the difference between what we do and ours is that they do, they do nothing other than see the patient. And we, we've made it real simple for them. We have a paper chart. Uh, so we do no transcribing. And so they're, you know, they can be with the patient 10 to 15 minutes. And now we have patients that come in with upper respiratory, takes, doesn't take much time. And we have patients that need suture, which takes a little bit more time. But the average is they, they'll see between four or five patients an hour. But that's, they, they, they do it every hour. And the advantage of urgent care is that people mostly know what's wrong with them when they walk in, right? Yeah, yeah it's clearly easier than primary care. Mm-hmm. Because, now, there's yes and no, because, because if the patient's constantly coming in, they have a chronic problem, you know what their issue is also. Uh-huh. Right. So you could I, I'm not a doctor, so I could argue. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't want to tell, uh, tell us how to practice medicine, yeah. but you can, you are, uh, you're getting a lot of experience in how to manage it. Right. All right. Um, somebody else. Sir. If you know what the right output price is. I'm uh, Richard Ralston from Americans for Free Choice in Medicine. Would you put the microphone closer to your mouth, please? Oh, okay. My question is, can we do, can we and how do we, do a better job at pulling back sometimes from the utilitarian arguments to establish the proper political context for a healthcare system in a country that's based on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the concept of individual rights, when the only mention we normally hear of rights is that everyone has a right to health care, which is often put forth by people that, that really mean by that that no one has the right to any health care at all unless they get it from the government or as the government requires. Uh, And I think this is particularly important for physicians. Uh, The New York Times last Sunday had an editorial about doctors and cost control, uh, which referred to doctors uh, as, um, uh, as complicit in the rising cost of health care, which is complicit has an interesting legal and even criminal connotation. Why? Because they are the ones who decide what treatments and procedures their patients uh, received. And it also referred to some of them as, uh, uh, or or many of them, as unabashed profiteers. Uh, I I think rather than just attack insurance companies or attacking hospitals, I, I think we're starting to see an explicit attack on the class of physicians as greedy profiteers, etc. Let's turn that question to the business professors since uh, the question of whether medicine is a business or whether it's a, whether it's the arena, in the arena of public policy is, uh, <clears throat> is pretty much your, uh, your line of work. Well, it's both. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, so that's what I tell my MBA students, you know, healthcare isn't toothpaste, although toothpaste is healthcare, but uh, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it, it's a business uh, that there is important regulatory and public policy concerns. I guess I'm an unabashed utilitarian or maybe just a public choice type person. I think the uh, amount of medical care people have a right to is what the taxpayers are willing to pay for them. 
And personally, I'm willing to pay something for my fellow citizens not to suffer unnecessarily. And there's a, but I'm not willing to pay an unlimited amount. And uh, that that's what we call politics to kind of figure out how much how much um, suffering we're willing to alleviate. Um, uh, uh, so I, I I think that's uh, sort of the the way it it works in a democracy. Of course, if you know, if you're not motivated by altruistic impulses, I, I guess we could, you know, allow you to be um, freed of the tax to pay for your fellow citizens. But then you have to carry that uninsurance card that I talked about this morning that says, in case of accident or illness, don't help me. I mean, <laughs> Steve, are you an unabashed utilitarian also? Well, somewhat. I mean, I, <laughs> look, look some, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely somewhat bashed. Um, this... Um, it's both. I mean, it's, it's, it's a business and it's a calling, it's a vocation. I mean, I, I, I watched my wife go through her, her training. I watched her take it very seriously as a vocation. I watched culturally how she changed. Uh, and, but at the same time, she, there's, a, there's a target income she's looking to make. You know, this is not, this is not uh, a charity that she's essentially doing as a small business operator. Uh, that, that said, in terms of this issue of what's a, what's a right, uh, I, I think this is, this is a political economy question, and it's, and it's not a new one. I mean, this is, last I count, the seventh time we're going through a health reform debate at a national level from the Wilson administration on. And this whole issue of whether it's a right, as in Bismarckian Germany when it was passed as a right, sort of, in the 1880s, we faced seven times. This is the seventh, and we, you know, we'll see where it turns out. The last six, the answer was no or Yes, in limited populations, if they're uh, Medicare, Medicaid was about the closest concession you're going to see. So one question I have for my students or anybody else is, what's different this time than it was the other previous six? My experience with physicians is they, and we have a lot of physicians that work at our companies, they try to do the right thing. I mean, clearly the reimbursement system pushes people to do certain things, but physicians, they want to do the right things. They, they show up because they want to take care of patients because if any of you have taken care of patients, it's not the easiest thing in the world. None of us are in the best moods when we're sick. So people that do it, you have to thank them every day. Yes, sir, waving the book. <laughs> I'd use the other hand, but I wrote that. Um, I'm a physician. I also practiced in managed care with this fine gentleman who spoke earlier, Dave Dingley. Uh, one of the things that we used to see a lot was the patient, uh, the doctors that went back to the patient always did best with the, with the quality parameters. Um, Dr. Harvey uh, quote is something I'd like to piggyback upon. And I would just ask, why isn't there more attention to that that unique and, and precious bond between patient and physician. I mean, healthcare, in my experience and in my observation, is a unique uh, crucible where law and emotion, uh, spiritual spirituality, um, e- e- economy or, or uh, commerce, uh, the contract between uh, a health plan and, and, and a provider, it's just incredibly complex. And... I just wonder why we're not paying more and talking more about the old uh, rule of thumb. When all else fails, go back to the patient. If your patient has a good bond with your doctor, that patient will listen to them. Adherence, compliance, persistency of the drugs that are per- and the regimens that are, 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 are pulled together in collaboration succeeds. I'd like to hear some thoughts from, from you uh, folks because I, I admire your opinion on that. Please. Who wants to jump in? 
one of the reasons I like so much the reforms that move toward the kind of renewable individual-based insurance that, that Mark and I have talked about is it allows you to actually have a pediatrician because you don't have to change every time you know your employer changes their PPO or the network gets shuffled or whatever it might be. And, and the insurance market should be supportive of individuals, not make them twist their lives to, to, to satisfy the insurance market. So, I mean, that's sort of observation number one. Observation number two is in this debate, there's a lot of talk about values and high-value care, and it's a term that, that I use, but people use it differently. One notion of high-value care is you take a physical outcome measure, a quality measure, and you, you, know, you sort of divide by the dollars necessary, and you call that value. I think that's a mistaken notion of value. The right notion of value is to get as close as possible to the to the individual expression of value, which is I am willing to pay X dollars for this experience. And that includes having a lasting relationship with a physician whose judgment you trust and who can, as a result, allow the individual, the only person who I think has the moral authority to make some of these tough calls, whether they be end-of-life expensive care versus hospice or, you know, back surgery versus rehabilitation. There are a lot of calls that can be made, but there's only one person who can display the values of making that call, in my view, and have it be uh, a, a, a defensible uh, long-term solution for American health care. So we have to move the system in those directions and have insurance and care practices lead us toward that. Well, the medical home model is a kind of attempt to resuscitate that kind of relationship, and we'll see basically how valuable consumers really think it is when push comes to shove. I'm, I'm hoping they'll think it's of high value, but maybe not. We'll see. Steve? One, th- one of the areas I've been studying over the last 10 years is consumer-driven health plans, and one of the things that I looked at there was a survey, actually two or three years of data, saying, you know, for those that are choosing health plans, what do they want most? And uh, the overwhelming feature that the consumer-driven folks wanted in their ideal health plan was their doctors were in the panel, that they could have that relationship. And uh, it was different than what it was sort of made out to be, which consumer-driven or HSAs are there just for cost efficiency and skin in the game. It was very clear that uh, the doctor-patient relationship was an essential, if not the predominant feature that they wanted to preserve. I believe that uh, 5 o'clock was the, uh, was the agreed uh, ending time, and we're a couple of minutes past that. I'd like to thank the panelists and thank you all for, uh, for hanging in there to the very end. You've done great things.